I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, Georgian London, as you've never experienced it before. Populated with animals. Pululating with animals. Pigs snuffling in the dirt, recycling the city's waste. Herds of sheep and cattle, thousands of them each week, being driven through the streets to and from Smithfield Market. Horses being used for every form of transport and playing a key part in old and new industries. Barking guard dogs protecting property from prowling burglars. Londoners lived cheek by jowl with their animals. As my guest in today's programme colourfully puts it, London's air was pungently infused with a plethora of animal smells. My guest is Thomas Almaroth-Williams, research associate at the Centre for 18th Century Studies at York University and, as it happens, a pig farmer's son. I have to tread carefully, not least because my my dad would be the first in line to uh, to point out that I'm 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 not a sort of um, an expert pig farmer in the making. So I suppose you know <laughs> my my interactions were were always I suppose kept at arm length. I never showed an interest in becoming a farmer, but I did visit quite often and would go and play with the piglets. And and in the book, when I'm uh, I, I don't claim to ha- to bring the expertise of a pig farmer to the book. In order to get that, I've had to use primary source material and also read animal behavioural science, etc. So I, I've gone in that direction. The key thing is, is that having those experiences as a farmer's son, seeing how exhausted my father was after a day's work, joining him at the farm for a day and seeing what he did, seeing how exhausting it was, seeing what the challenges were, the hours of work, the injuries that were inflicted when a pig suddenly slipped in between your legs when you were trying to give them an injection and you fall over in the muck. That, I think, has made me more sensitive to um, how difficult it is to manage animals and then I project that onto what it must have been like to uh, manage those animals in such a difficult environment as George and London. Tom writes in his preface, Very few historians have acknowledged the city's animals, and even fewer have integrated them into key debates on social, urban and economic history. And that is precisely what his book does. Though not, I hasten to add, in a way that is in the slightest dry. The book is written with brio and packed with memorable anecdotes. This, for example. 
1752, Horace Walpole describes riding a few miles out of the city and enjoying a syllabub under the cow, by which he meant the cow was milked straight into a glass of cider or ale. Farm fresh. But to begin at the beginning, I asked Tom to describe the experience of someone visiting Georgian London for the first time. For someone who hadn't visited the city before, it was shocking. Um, Although Georgian London was much smaller than Victorian London, it was still in a completely different league to anything else that 18th century Britons would have seen, or indeed foreigners visiting from the continent. And they would have encountered a cacophony of of noise, um, hooves on on the stones of the metropolis, the rattling um, ironclad wheels the whinnying, the livestock. I mean, the numbers of livestock are just extraordinary by the early 1800s, 30,000 cattle and sheep traversing the city every week. Um, So the sounds of their, uh, I suppose, excitement sometimes, um, pain and distress on probably more often um, would have been extraordinary. I mean, you would have also had in, in specific places, you would have had specific noises. So, you know, the rattling of wheels in Covent Garden Market mingling with the bartering of the of the people selling and, and buying vegetables in, in the market as well. And that, for me, is what interests me throughout the interaction, physical interaction and, and the sounds that you get mixed up between people and animals, because all of the time people and animals are cheek by jowl working together. And, and this is partly why the Old Bailey proceedings has been so important, because despite certain limitations that have to be taken into account, the Old Bailey records those sounds in a way that few other sources do. So as you say, sounds reoccur through the book. I, I start with them and then of course in the watchdog chapter, which we'll come on to, they play a key role in that as well. There would have been hot spots for for sound as other things. I mean Smithfield Market was an extraordinarily overwhelming environment. So people who live close to the market record that, you know, by five AM they can't sleep because the sound of the shouting drovers and the and the livestock is just so loud that it's a sort of tidal wave of, of sound coming towards them. And along with the sound, of course, there would be the smells and the whole the whole overwhelming physical presence of, of animals in the city. And I guess that that sort of ties into one of the big orthodoxies that you want to challenge in the way that we could say that animals have been sort of almost written out or not written, certainly not written in to the history of Georgian London. And, you know, since the time of Keith Thomas, there's been a a view that really is a sort of is a sort of decrescendo in terms of the importance of animals in urban life and people were becoming more remote from animals and you want to one of the key things you want to do in the book it seemed to me was to challenge that orthodoxy yes i mean fairly soon after keith thomas's book came out animal historians came forward to debunk this idea of George and London as becoming alienated from uh, animals. Um, he doesn't specifically mention London, but clearly London is the is what he has in mind. So lots of animal historians have have, have shown that um, the interactions are very close, and in fact they argue that the reason why, in their view, uh, greater affection for animals, um, greater concern about their well-being, came about through troubling proximity to the cruelty that was inflicted on these animals. So that is sort of the direction that British animal studies have tended to take on the whole since then, since Keith Thomas's book in, in the 80s. So fantastic work in terms of showing 
you know, the animals were very much in the city and the interactions were, were constant. The problem is that those subsequent studies have focused on the animal as victim and have focused on source material from clergymen, from humanitarians, from romantic writers who also focus on sort of animal rights and humanitarianism. Very rarely in all of this do we actually get to meet the real animals living in Georgian London or indeed the people who were living and working most closely with them. Indeed, most of the people writing these sources are writing from the countryside and are fairly horrified by the hubbub of London and those sort of mean, um, brutal people who who they see as, as not caring for these animals very well. So the voices of the animals and the voices of the people who, who live and work with them has been lost. And so this is what City of Beasts brings for the first time. And it also brings some analysis. You know, there have been some kind of encyclopedic books about animal life in the city over over centuries everything from horses down to fleas but there hasn't been the analysis of why these animals really mattered you know why should social urban economic historians care and why should they now seek to integrate those animals more fully into the big debates I don't really see myself as an animal historian. I see myself as a, as a social historian who's seen an opportunity to integrate animals and then answer the bigger questions where, to be honest, we have been misled on lots of these issues about Georgian London and Georgian Britain more broadly, partly because animals have been overlooked. And because of that, we've missed key activities, key spaces in the, in the city, complexities in, in social relations, which animals allow us to, to look into. As a layperson, it's very easy to see animals in the iconography of the period, but not really take stock of what it means. You know, you can see pictures of sheep in Soho Square, or you can see cows in Islington, you can think, oh, how quaint, how strange, <laughs> they did things differently then. But but your book really brought home to me the extent to which animals, and particularly, I guess, horses, were intimately involved in the whole functioning of the, of the city. And, you know, even, even in, when it comes to horses, you point out that a lot of the writing has focused on the sort of aristocratic dimension of, of horse owning and horse riding. But it's clear from your book that the, the whole economy would have collapsed if it hadn't been for the key part that horses played in it. Yes, I mean, I mean, absolutely. I, I just, when talking about cart horses, say that there were very few trades that wouldn't have relied on on cart horses in, in one way or another, and it goes right the way through the economy from these very progressive high-profit-making industries like brewing industry, one of the biggest industries in Britain, the coal trade, where they are keeping elite cart horses, very expensive animals, as expensive as some of the elite's carriage horses in some instances, but all the way down to the sort of scraggly, not particularly well-looked-after, end-of-working-life cart horse who's who's serving one individual who just about manages to to feed him keep keep this animal going uh, and that individual might be using that horse seasonally to to sell greens at one point of the year or collect gravel at another a lot of the book is interested in horses being involved in these exciting trades and in the industrial revolution but it also acknowledges and hence why I've you know briefly looked at donkeys as well helping the costermongers in the, in in the street and they they all played played their role and it's not the case that horses are sort of antithetical 
in the in the Georgians' minds to to progress and to industrialization and to new ways of doing things. From the book, it, it's clear that they were integral to it. And in fact, in, when you look at advertising, they were kind of a marker of of modernity and being, you know, being using the latest techniques for doing things like, you know, um, grinding paint colors, for example. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, and I have to say, I think that was a, a surprise for me. I hadn't, um, I was aware of industrial tourism at this time. There've been some interesting studies about that. But I, I, I suppose I was expecting when I set out on this, that this horsework might have just been taken for granted. And I, I perhaps wouldn't have been entirely surprised if there had have been a bit of embarrassment about dirty, sweaty horsework, and perhaps they might have wanted to distance, but that wasn't the case at all. As you, you, you make the example of uh, of the paint trade, and this is an expensive product. You got the the Adam brothers going around painting these lavish walls and ceilings with these new pigments that have been invented all the time, um, and here we have London's paint manufacturers who lead the industry, and they are using their precious trade cards, uh, and they are using equine labour proudly they're showing the ladies being painted um having their portraits painted on canvases and then right next to them they show the the backroom horsework of their sophisticated mill with the horse calmly walking around the mill and in some cases though trade cards are then further ennobled with sort of rococo design and the royal crest they were absolutely proud of the horsework because it emphasized efficiency technological progress and value for money, of course, by substituting equine labour for human labour, you could then pass on a discount to your customers. So yet those trade cars are just fantastic. And uh, and, and they, they crop up in, in various trades, so in snuff making as well. Um, I would have loved to have seen the silversmith's uh, flatting mill that I mentioned in the book. Unfortunately, there's not an image for that, but I, I just have my own pair of sugar tongs from that very <laughs> workshop. Oh, um, really? That, that's my favourite prop when I give talks to hand that around, because it's, it's very difficult to... There are very few images of mill horses. In, in scientific diagrams, occasionally you see them, but you don't tend to get a, a particular mill horse who's been depicted. They weren't expensive animals. They were hidden away in the mill house. So we don't have much evidence that way. And you don't get physical or behavioural descriptions of them very often. So uh, having, having the sugar tongs that I know the horses mentioned in a coroner's report actually made is perhaps overly moving for me but I've been working on this for a long time mm, so I can be right <laughs> absolutely well I did wonder if any of the the many um modern companies that make heritage Georgian colors had thought about you know putting ground by horse as a as a sort of authenticating label but um, I guess I guess there might be problems with that I think I think they could well there are already some quite outrageous names for those expensive paints so I'm sure they could work in some some equine related names yeah now I wanted to Talk a little bit, Tom, about the the muse, because I guess, you know, as I walk and cycle around London, I'm I'm aware of of muse in in particular parts of the city. You say they were not just storage units for horses, and I guess that's how I tended to think of them. But after reading your book, it's clear they're part of a whole, a really sort of ecosystem, a whole sort of economy of how the horse was involved in affluent households, but how it also brought in human labour and a whole, a whole sort of industry around the horse. There have been a couple of previous studies that have acknowledged the existence of the muse, but they've tended to be architectural um, studies. But what really has been missed is how the muse enabled polite West End 
terraced house living to thrive. The West End Terrace House is built on the, on the idea that what you don't need in London is lots and lots of space. You have that in your countryside estate. What you need in London is to be equipped for mobility. You need a, a nice room where your visitors can come and see you. Uh, and then you need the ability to move around the city and get to lots of sociable events. And so in the past, historians have just looked at it as that, that that's what the horses were doing. They, they increase mobility. What I do is slightly different, I, um, which we can talk about that. But, you know, horses had their own recreational role separate from that. But the muse really enables this. This is the key um, mobility aspect. And it really is in, ingenious to be able to tuck away your smelly horses and your um, valuable vehicles and the staff who need to look after them, put them out of sight, but as close as possible to your property. Horse riders today will, as I point out of the book, that um, you know there probably wasn't enough space and ventilation as we would like nowadays. But nevertheless, the sacrifices that these house and horse owners were making was extraordinary. You've got some aristocrats in the city giving up a fifth of their plot to these animals mm. in the most expensive parts of the town. And it, it's also ingenious that the 24-hour processing aspect of, of the muse is really interesting. Obviously, You've got basic living quarters for these muse servants, um, certainly not luxury, but just to have your staff on call 24-7 to make sure that your horses, if they get ill during the night, that you spot that. If you notice a case of colic, then you're, you're onto that quickly. If, you, if uh, cases of glanders are, or strangles are passing through the muse, that you're onto that quickly. And these, these animals are so valuable that their owners really can't afford to lose them. And they're valuable in terms of price, but also in terms of a sense of affection. The owners have spent a lot of time choosing them, and they've made sure that they that they all match nicely, um, which is sort of uh, mm. an aesthetic thing. But also when you're out on the, on the street and driving to Parliament, you want to show that you have an orderly household, an orderly stable, and that you have um, aesthetic taste. All of this comes down to a lot of work, added to which you've got drunk lords wanting to be picked up at 3am at from Brooks's club um, in the West End as well. So the, the coachman is having to respond to that as well. But, but elite, ho all horses require a lot of care and constant care in terms of feeding, watering, um, grooming, keeping them clean. But elite horses, if you want them to look really good and you want their trappings, their equipment to look good, then it's constant work. And this then means that mew servants who are low paid, that are at the bottom of the heap really um, in West End servant um, on the ladder, but because they're looking after these very valuable animals and vehicles, they, they gain a lot of trust. And of course, quite a few of them decide to abuse that trust because they see that they are part of a hugely profitable and exciting equine economy in London that they can tap into by selling off the spare wheel that their master has allowed them to take or not allowed them to take, um, doing side deals with the many tradesmen who are constantly entering the muse to supply wealthy masters. This sort of feeds back into the impact that horses as objects of consumption could have but also the horse as a voracious consumer of architecture labor manufactured goods food then has ripple down effects through society it, it provides opportunities for social mobility it creates tension between servants and masters there's some really interesting things going on that knowledge about horses empowers Londoners and we see that 
among entrepreneurs, we see that among servants, and the tensions that that throws up are really interesting, I think. Views of Georgian England often polarise or dichotomise the town and the country, and you write about how the horse is really the, the sort of vector for, for getting beyond the city and that demarcation line is, is much more porous than perhaps other, other accounts have suggested. Yes, exactly. I mean, th- there's been uh, one other study that has suggested urbanites did seek out private space and, and, and go into the countryside. It didn't, it didn't speak specifically about horse riding, um, but that did get me thinking about what the horse's role in this might be. We have definitely underestimated the porous nature of that boundary between city and countryside. At the same time, we've also underestimated the role of um, of other motivations in recreational life. So 18th century historians, um, including myself in the past, have sort of been obsessed with sociability. And historians are beginning to look at other things now, for example, the importance of reading, um, of a sort of private time, of, of self-reflection, of, of um, religious um, faith observation but horse riding was a huge a hugely popular activity and it's it i found it astonishing really that london's role other than the birth of the circus london's dominant role in britain's equestrian life has been almost entirely overlooked the growth of riding schools this culture of riding out into the suburbs obviously we all know that hyde park has been a famous riding venue, but we haven't really looked in detail at what went on there. And and so so many other things. I mean, you've got um, Londoners riding out to um, patronise um, race courses. I don't think many people will be aware that Londoners went fox hunting um, in their own suburbs. So there's just so much activity all tied in with the fact that London dominates the sporting equestrian publishing world. It's a real hub of activity. It dominates the horse trade. You've got the most famous horse repositories like Tattershalls in the city. Um, so if you if you want to buy your horse, if you want to show off your horse, and if you want to to ride to to de-stress, to get away from all of those sociable events, then then London is is set up to provide all of that. And increasingly so, all of this becomes more commercialized and more accessible. And people on with red, relatively modest income find ways to be able to ride, even if that means um, jumping on the brewer's horse, whether you're allowed to or not. Or, you know, you do see people um, joy riding on other people's horses uh, and being accused of theft. But it does just seem that they're just out to cause trouble and have some fun. You quote a, a young woman who takes riding lessons and it's clear that once she's once she you know has been trained and is confident in the saddle, riding gives her a great sense of autonomy. I guess that kind of thing is probably quite hard to catch. It's probably it's probably quite rare in the record. But I thought it was very interesting and revealing that it's kind of horse riding as an end in itself, rather than merely, as you were saying, uh, as a, a means to sociability. Yeah, absolutely. So that's uh, she, that was Fanny Campbell um, of the famous um, acting dynasty. And when she was about 22, she goes into High Park and, and does the usual polite activity of, of, of talking to acquaintances, um, calmly walking around Hyde Park. But then she seems to get bored 
uh, and she jumps on this horse. And it's the fact that she says that she chooses to jump on this great, awkward brute of a horse. Um, and it's the, the sort of thrill, the challenge of doing this. And it, it's not really how we, how we perceive 18th century women all of the time. Horse riding opportunities for women in this period did become more restricted. Most 18th century women were riding side saddle with a few exceptions. The fox hunting female rider really dies out in this period. So there were limitations. Riding out into the suburbs as a woman was dangerous because of um, sort of roaming thieves in the in the suburbs. Fanny is a great example, though, of, of how the thrill of riding touched um, everyone who could get this opportunity. And uh, no, it's a, it is a wonderful example. And it was it was frustrating, I suppose, in some ways that the, the two men who who are key to that chapter, the two city boys whose diaries I looked through, their diaries are very restrained. So they they record in helpful detail, you know, the weather and the length of their journey and where they went to on horseback. So that that was enough to reveal this amazing culture of um, of riding out into the suburbs and seeing how they fitted that into their very stressful mercantile daily schedules um, was really fascinating. Of course, I would, I would have loved them to have, have written down how much they loved their horses and, and owed their well-being to. You do get snippets of information which suggest quite a deep affection for horses. There's the, the bachelor Silas Neville who, uh, who also enrolls in the most fashionable riding school at the time and he agonises over choosing his favourite horse, Pissarro, um, the horse. And then when everything goes wrong for Silas later in his life, when he, he loses his money and he has to give up on the idea of riding again, this realisation comes to him as he's riding one of his horses uh, and he cries over the horse and, and, and he's doesn't mind writing this in in his journal that was very telling merchants are not quite as forthcoming with their with their opinions but um it was a little window onto how important horses were in the recreational and personal lives of of 18th century londoners on the broader question of the treatment of animals i know that's not the main focus of your study but you say that the georgians would have made a a distinction between what they would have called wanton cruelty and what they would have regarded as necessary cruelty in order to to manage the task in hand yes i mean this is two camps have sort of formed on this issue really you have some historians who have argued that there was this flowering of new affection for animals in this period uh, and those who say there just isn't the evidence for that that outside of a narrow group of middle class intellectual often not Londoners and that this new attitude doesn't spread much and I stand more with the latter camp I didn't find much evidence that there was a great uh, sentimental transformation in in attitudes Uh, what I did find is that things were much more complicated than we've given Georgian Londoners credit for and that the two things affection appreciation for animals can go hand in hand with what we would now see as cruel treatment but at the time would have been seen as necessary in the incredibly difficult environment in which people were working i'm certainly not arguing wanton cruelty didn't happen people went too far the blood went to their head they beat the sheep too hard out of frustration things went wrong 
But the immense pressure that these men were under, the suffering experienced by the animals was mirrored often by the frustration, danger and harm that was experienced by the men who were looking after them. So I have the example of the Smithfield drover who gets into a scrap with a coachman uh, and the drover ends up dead on the floor having been hit by the handle of a whip. And that's because the the, uh, the hackney carriage had, had broken the sheep's leg in a, in a traffic accident. Just little snippets like that give you a, a sense for how difficult things were. So I have tried to uh, <laughs> express due sympathy to the animals, but also to the, the men. And it was mainly men who looked after these animals in the, in the street and to understand what is actually going on in an image like Hogarth's second stage to cruelty. Were these men just born brutal? Did they just become brutalized because they were working with animals? I, I just don't buy that. I think I think that's a 20th century, 21st century view of of condemning um, our ancestors without trying to understand what it actually would have been like to be in their shoes. So I, I hope that I've um, explored those complexities more than has been happened before. And given that it was so difficult to drive cattle or sheep through the city, and given that it caused noise and nuisance and pollution and, and, and physical danger, why was it that Smithfield persisted as a city livestock market for so long when other cities were relocating their markets to the periphery? Why did it last until the mid-19th century? It really is astonishing, as you say, when you look at the other cities. So you know, inner city livestock droving wasn't happening in Paris um, after the 1300s. You have Manchester and Liverpool steadily moving these operations out of the city further and further into the suburbs in, in the 18th century. Uh, and yes, London carries on until 1855. I mean, I think it's... Uh, a victim of a success of the trade. It's been going for, for 900 years. It's so much more valuable than was the case in any of those other cities. And it's become too interwoven with other major economic activities. So the banking houses surround Smithfield and together they're able to pay landowners throughout the English countryside incredibly rapidly. It, it, it works perfectly. So when... Um, particularly, um, I mean, in the latter part of the 18th century, but increasingly in the early 19th century, when it's threatened, when plans are suggested for moving Smithfield further out of the city, every time the major grazing interests and the salesmen and the bankers, they come and they say, this is not going to work. The swiftness of the payments that we're able to orchestrate by being close together, by having this in the city is crucial. In addition to that, you've got the local businesses serving the many people working in the marketplace, the salesmen and the drovers. Um, so you've got the inns who are making a huge amount of money because Smithfield is such a, a hub for trade. So I think it's really that. I mean, you could look at other things. You could There have been suggestions that you know the, Cor the Corporation of London came in for a lot of criticism in this period as the death toll mounted. I did consider whether this was because of the income that the corporation was making from tolls I didn't think that that was sufficient to explain this I think it's a bigger picture it's it is the incredible value financial value of Smithfield market and it's obviously a huge logistical operation to move the market elsewhere but I think they were just too nervous that this huge revenue stream would would be harmed 
Now, as we draw to close, Tom, we we talked about the dray horse as a, an unsung hero, and it would be it, I think it'd be wrong to to finish without also nodding in the direction of the the guard dog, which is another category which has been perhaps little regarded in, until until your book. Yes, I mean, so previously animals in the uh, sorry dogs in the early modern period have uh, tended to be considered in two groups you've either historians have looked at the lap dog as a way of exploring luxury luxurious excess by the elite keeping these animals or the nuisance cur the dog in the street um, with its um, links to to rabies and nuisance but what I've tried to do is, is argue that that actually dogs weren't useless useless luxury or useless nuisances in Georgian London, they played a really important role in one of the most controversial aspects of the city, which was the the fight against crime. And and wherever you place your view on on how bad the crime waves were in Georgian London, Georgian London has certainly felt threatened. And they certainly didn't feel that even though there were major improvements in policing in this period, they still had to take matters into their own hands, lock their belongings away, do a sweep of the house, make sure the shutters were closed, have uh, iron railings up um, in front of the windows. But what they fell back on time and time and again was the vig- vigilance of their either their yard dog or their house dog and the deterrent that that dog provided and continues to provide in the 21st century, even even in the last few years, The Guardian had an article where they interviewed some um, seasoned burglars and they still say that dogs are one of the, the things that they fear most when, when breaking into a house. Mm. And But, but I, I really wasn't... So I, I kind of had this idea, having seen a, a little bit of evidence. Then when I started to look through the Old Bailey proceedings and the newspaper records, I was astonished by the level of detail um, that was given about the interactions between burglars and dogs and the lengths that burglars would go to to try to thwart this formidable enemy uh, with poisoning, bribing, getting to know the dog, learning the dog's name, uh, calling the dog by its name, and, and seeing that tussle between the two. And I suppose the most exciting thing about it was seeing that not only did dogs quite successfully stop burglars and lead to them being arrested by raising the alarm, but even that their behaviour was sometimes cited in court to help convict a burglar. If your dog never barked unless a stranger um, came onto the premises and it didn't bark that night, then you know it wasn't a stranger that, that came into your premises. And if you know that you've got a disgruntled servant uh, in your household or someone you've just fired from your workshop, then suddenly they're in the frame. Uh, and that kind of evidence did, did feed into convictions uh, in this period. I was talking to Tom Almaroth-Williams about his recent book, City of Beasts, available now from Manchester University Press. It's social and economic history at its most fascinating. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find 50 more in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Hedgehog and the Fox podcast. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.